Well, good morning. Don't you wish you had a little video that played every time you walked in the room? <laughs> it's good to be with you this morning. If you will, open your Bibles to Acts chapter 9, verses 1 through 22. Acts 9, 1 through 22. And if you don't have a Bible and you'd like to use one provided for you by the church, there's one right there in the back of the pew in front of you, and you'll find this on page 777 or 817 of the Pew Bible, depending on which printing of that you have. Acts 9, 1 to 22. And I'm going to maybe tee this up a little bit differently this morning. This, this chapter, Acts 9, tells about the remarkable conversion of Saul. Many of you have, have probably read this account before. Saul, we know better as the Apostle Paul. But it is a powerful demonstration of God's sovereignty in salvation, uh, meaning that God chose to save Saul in spite of Saul. And whenever you use the phrase, God chose, in the context of salvation, uh, you can get a good old-fashioned Christian argument started. Uh, over the tension between God's sovereignty and human responsibility. And that topic, of course, has been uh, debated for most of church history. And the good news is, uh, just to take the pressure off of you and me, I am not going to preach the sermon that resolves the issue once and for all this morning. <laughs> just, uh, just so you know that. But whenever someone suggests that God chooses people for salvation. There are objections that arise in the minds of lots of people, and, and that may be happening even to you right now. Just the language itself begins to get your mind going in a certain direction because we have beliefs or assumptions, many of us, um, that just don't allow us to go there. There's this sort of dissonance in our mind, and, and, and those concepts don't harmonize. So people seem to th say things like, well, that seems unfair or unjust of God in some way to save some and not others. Uh, something about that seems incompatible with the love of God, people might say. Um, or if that's true, how is man responsible for his sin? I mean, doesn't that ultimately make God responsible? Uh, and then, by the way, if that's true, what's the point of evangelism if God's just going to save people? You ever asked those questions before or heard them asked? When you boil it all down, these and other objections um, basically grow out of a desire to defend the character of God on one hand and to preserve a certain amount of, of freedom and, and moral responsibility of man. Those are basically the two things at issue for people who kind of object to this concept. And uh, it, it's in this vein that one of the phrases people commonly use is this, God is a perfect gentleman. He won't force himself into someone's life. He will woo them but he won't drag anyone to heaven kicking and screaming. Maybe you've heard that kind of phrase before. Well, in the conversion of Saul, I would suggest to you that we see God is not a perfect gentleman. He is so much better. He is so much better than a perfect gentleman. So I've titled this message 
uh, better than a perfect gentleman. And you know, somebody probably Memorial Day weekend, nice sunny day, somebody invited you out on the boat and you said, no, I'm going to church. And, uh, and here you are. You signed up for this and it's too late now. <laughs> so let's look together at Acts 9, 1 through 22. And I'm going to ask you to stand in honor of the reading of God's word. Beginning in verse one, I'm reading out of the English standard version. Hear the word of the Lord. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him, and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, but rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus, and for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a, a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, rise and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul, for behold, he is praying. And he has seen a, in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized and taking food, he was strengthened. For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogues saying, he is the son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon his name? And, he, and has he not come here for this purpose to bring them bound before the chief priests. But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. Let's pray together. Well, Father, we thank you as always for the privilege of assembling as your people, worshiping you together and listening to your voice as it is spoken through your word. You know how much we need your truth to penetrate our hearts, to orient, 
organize and change our very lives. And Lord, you know how much we need to grow in our gratitude for what you have done for us in the death of Christ, in making us your children instead of your enemies. And so, Lord, would you expand our understanding of that very thing today as we unpack this passage of your word. And so we ask, as we always do, that you would speak your word by your spirit through your servant to your people and for your glory. In Christ's name, amen. And you may be seated. Well, you recall at the end of Acts chapter 7, Stephen was stoned. He had been preaching as the apostles had preached, um, had gone into a synagogue, a, a Hellenist synagogue, synagogue of the freedmen it mentioned, and um, like the apostles, he made enemies <laughs> by doing so. And they ended up dragging him before the Jewish leaders and essentially putting him on trial, which is again what happened to the apostles too. What was different about his situation is that unlike the apostles, he never even finished his sermon before he had essentially incited a riot, uh, stirred the mob up who dragged him out of the city and stoned him. And in the aftermath of his execution, he was the first Christian martyr, you remember. And in the aftermath of that, an intense persecution arose against the church and Christians were scattered outside of Jerusalem and throughout the region of Judea and Samaria. And they went about preaching wherever they went. And chapter eight focuses especially on the, the preaching of Philip in Samaria and uh, then on the road to Gaza, the desert road where he met the Ethiopian eunuch. And that man was converted as well. And then in chapter nine, it brings us back around to Saul and tells us about how he became a Christian on his way to becoming the apostle who wrote so much of the New Testament. And so in this brief account of Saul's conversion, the story really revolves around three characters. You have Saul, the hostile sinner, Jesus, the sovereign Lord, and Ananias, the obedient worker. And the role of each one of them tells us something important about the work of salvation. And so my, my sermon today will be organized around these three points uh, arising out of those three characters. Number one, that unbelieving man is hostile toward Christ. Unbelieving man is hostile toward Christ. Number two, that God graciously and sovereignly saves people in spite of their hostility. And number three, that God chooses to use believers as instruments to bring unbelievers to faith through the work of personal evangelism, love, relationship, and so forth. He uses believers as instruments to bring unbelievers to faith. And by the way, this does have some practical relevance. So this is not just sort of an abstract and intellectual theological treatise here. 
uh, and I'll conclude with some points of application. But let's look first at the fact that unbelieving man is hostile toward Christ. Look at verses one and two. It said, but Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus so that if any, uh, if he found any belonging to the way men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Let's, let's notice a few things about his hostility here. First of all, it says he was still breathing threats. That's a reference, of course, to uh, his introduction back at the end of chapter seven and the beginning of chapter eight, the people who were stoned, the people who stoned Stephen laid their garments at Saul's feet. So he was present for the execution of Stephen, but it goes on to say he approved of it. And then himself began ravaging the church and entering houses to drag men and women off to prison. So he was still breathing threats, but it also says there that he was threatening murder against Christians. And he meant it. We don't get it here in this, uh, these chapters um, that we've just been reading up to this point, but later in his own defense, Paul describes himself just prior to his conversion. And here's what he says in Acts 26, verses nine through 11, if you wanna mark that down for a reference later. He says, I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. So people were, not only Stephen was stoned, but others through the work of Saul to go round them up and bring them before the chief priests. They were put to death for their faith in Christ and Saul cast his vote against them, he said. He was party to the death of numerous people and he did it in other foreign cities. We hear about his conversion here on the way to Damascus. This was by his own account, not the only city that he went off to doing this sort of thing. He said he did it in other foreign cities. He was still breathing threats. He was breathing threats of murder. And it says in verse two that he asked for permission to persecute Christians. He didn't get a call from the nominating committee. And Saul, you know, we're having a hard time finding somebody to round up Christians and bring them back for trial. He asked for permission to go round them up. He basically wanted to be deputized as a bounty hunter to go round up men and women. Now this is an exceptional degree of hostility, right? I mean, I think we would agree with that. When I say unbelievers are hostile toward Christ, 
not all unbelievers are that hostile toward Christ. In fact, most are not. It was exceptional in its degree, but not exceptional in its nature. Man in his natural state is hostile toward God, not neutral or indifferent about him. We could uh, simply look to the other uh, believers, or not believers, rather the unbelievers, the others who stoned Stephen as examples of that. In other words, Saul was one of many who were hostile toward Christ. But Jesus said, he who is not with me is against me. That people are divided up in, into either those who are reconciled to God through Christ or those who are enemies of God outside of Christ. And we are enemies willingly. I'm not making this up, by the way. <laughs> we could point back, as I said, to the rest of the mob that stoned Stephen. Uh, they had heard the gospel preached, but they stiffened their neck and refused to believe. And they were responsible for their unbelief. And this is a snapshot. This whole account gives us a snapshot of God, of man as unbelievers and as uh, believers. Let me read two passages of scripture that make this point more strongly because, because here we have uh, just an episode concerning a group of people and Stephen and Saul as an individual. But, but interestingly, Paul, the apostle Paul in writing uh, both the letter to the Ephesians and to the Romans applies this truth to man universally. That is, we are hostile toward God, his enemies. Ephesians 2 verses 1 through 3 is, is one of those passages. The other is Romans 1, 18 through 20. If you either wanted to thumb quickly or you just want to jot it down for future or re reference later today. But Ephesians 2 says, you were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. That's our birthright children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Romans 1, 18 through 20 says this, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, for God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so that they are without excuse, they being man. So let me summarize that for you. What, what Romans 1 claims is that God has revealed himself universally to mankind through creation and through the human conscience even. And man universally says no. He suppresses the truth in his unrighteousness. He goes on to say he exchanges the truth of God for a lie. He worships the creature rather than the creator. 
And then God turns him over to that and lets him have the consequence of it. That's how the Bible explains the nature of man. Now, we don't think of ourselves as quite that bad. Um, it does get better for those <laughs> who turn to the Lord in faith. But see, God doesn't owe man anything. And the reason I'm, the reason I'm sort of lingering on this point is because if we don't have a right understanding of who we really are as sinful man in relation to God, we don't understand grace. We don't understand the gospel. But God doesn't owe man anything. He's revealed himself and man has said no to it. And so the fact then that he saves any is incredibly Gracious, right? It is amazing grace that he would save anybody in that condition. I use uh, sometimes an illustration that I, I find helpful in this regard. If you think of the, uh, the musical or uh, you know, stage production or was made into a movie of Annie, where the little orphan Annie, you know, and Daddy Warbucks, the millionaire, goes to the orphanage and adopts Annie. So if you, if you picture this scene where a daddy Warbucks goes to the orphanage and all the orphans know daddy Warbucks is coming and so they clean themselves up just as clean as they can get. They dress themselves up and they're on their best behavior and he walks in and they go, oh, pick me, pick me, pick me, pick me, pick me. And daddy Warbucks, who could, who could provide a home for all of them, only picks one or two or three or whatever. There's something that seems unkind about that on Daddy Warbuck's part. But if, on the other hand, Daddy Warbuck shows up and the orphans go running in the other direction because they despise him and they go and hide in the dark closet and the attic, reviling him as they go. Some of them run out the back door and back around front to slash the tires of his limousine and steal the hubcaps and spray paint his car. But Daddy Warbucks walks in the door and in spite of that says, I want him and I want her and I want her and I want him. Well, that doesn't seem so unfair or unkind or unloving now, does it? In fact, it's inexplicably loving. Well, what I would submit to you is that is the way the Bible depicts man and his regard for God outside of faith in Christ. Now, that, that may be a little bit more, much for you to digest uh, this morning. But what, I, what I'm saying here is that Saul, as a hostile sinner, provides a picture of the hostility that, that man has toward God and God doesn't owe him anything. Man stands before God as a hostile enemy, entirely responsible for his hostility. That's point number one. And the good news is point number two, that God graciously and sovereignly saves people in spite of their hostility. 
Is this developing into good news yet? (laughs) Verse three says that it was as he went on his way that Jesus met him to save him. In other words, this Saul, who was still breathing threats and murder, asking for permission to go round up Christians, while he went on his way to do that, Jesus met him on the road and saved him. There's not even a hint that Jesus saw something good in Saul. There's no suggestion that Saul had been sort of laying awake at night wondering if this Christian thing might be true, thinking he might believe in him. There's no hint of anything about that at all. He's a murderer, still breathing threats against the church and on his way to do so, Jesus saves him. You know, Saul was not the kind of guy somebody would would have said about, well, you know, Christians wouldn't have said about Saul, you know, he's kind of grumpy, but he means well. You know, I mean, he's basically a good guy. No, he's not basically a good guy. And he doesn't mean well. He means to drag Christians 150 miles back to Jerusalem. That's how far Damascus is, somewhere in that range. That's a week's trip Saul has asked for permission to make to carry out this sort of retribution against Christians. And Jesus saves him entirely by grace, entirely. And he does so sovereignly. Let's look again at verses three through five. I'll read the first, uh, through that first half of verse five. It says, now, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And verse five, he said, who are you, Lord? He doesn't even know who he's talking to. Lord is a term of respect. He doesn't mean the Lord Jesus. He hasn't just had a revelation of that. Who are you? He just knows whoever's talking is in charge. (laughs) Right? You be struck with a sudden sense of that. A flash of light just blinded you and you're lying on the ground. And this voice of authority says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who are you, Lord? Let's continue reading. And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting, but rise and enter the city and you will be told what to do. Now, this is why I say, I don't see this as Jesus being a perfect gentleman. I don't know of any gentleman school that teaches you uh, it's okay to knock people down blind them and then boss them around, right? But he, you know, he does not woo Saul. He does not invite Saul to go into the city. He commands him, rise, enter the city. You will be told what to do. 
And yet, Saul doesn't go kicking and screaming as the allegation is often made. People say, you know, I just can't accept that God would care, you know, drag some people kicking and screaming into heaven. He, Saul doesn't go kicking and screaming. He gets up and enters the city willingly. And after Ananias lays his hands on Saul, he regains his sight. He's filled with the Holy Spirit and he's baptized. And then he began proclaiming Jesus. Immediately it said, proving that he was the Christ. I love that one. <laughs> he so understood what he had rejected for this period of time that when he became a believer, he, he, could, he could argue the case, so to speak, so convincingly that, uh, that others couldn't really refute him. He's proving that Jesus is the Christ. In a snap, he becomes, he goes from murderer to preacher but not by force, not by compulsion is he preaching. God had, had wrought a change in his heart and he is now willingly exalting Christ instead of persecuting him. God saved Saul in spite of his hostility. He did it graciously and he did it sovereignly. And that is a remarkable Account. But number three, God chooses to use believers as instruments to bring unbelievers to faith. And here we simply want to observe that in verses 10 through 19, Ananias was one of the tools that God used to bring about the conversion of Saul. As I mentioned kind of in my introduction, it's common for people to ask, if God is sovereign in salvation, what's the point of evangelism, right? And I, I understand why people ask that question. I, once upon a time, I asked it myself. I asked all of them. But it is a rhetorical question. I mean, in other words, people are, are, are basically making the, they're, they're making the point rather than asking a question to say, uh, if that's true, it, evangelism doesn't make any sense. Like if God's just gonna save people, evangelism's not necessary. What's the point in that? But if that were the case, we would have to say about this passage, if God was just gonna save Saul on the road to Damascus, there's no point in using Ananias. What's the point? Why does, why does he need Ananias? Well, of course, as I said before, God doesn't need. So like you, can, you always know, the answer to that question, why does God need such and such? Well, he doesn't need anything, but why does he even use them? Or again, the, the, the people ask the question almost rhetorically. But we don't want to miss the obvious point that he did use Ananias. Do you see that? I mean, doesn't it seem, it seems really obvious to me. Maybe it's just me. But Jesus could have just finished the job right there on the road, right? He was totally in command of the situation. He, 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 really, he really, like Ananias, didn't add anything to what Jesus could have done himself. And yet he uses Ananias as he uses other believers to call unbelievers to repentance out of darkness and into light. And he doesn't explain why he does that. But then again, he's not obligated 
to explain himself to us in all kinds of ways. I, I would mention here um, that, that I, think, I think this is something at issue in our hearts and minds as it relates to understanding um, God's sovereignty and sharing in the unbelieving world about a God who is sovereign, that, that uh, one of the issues we have just is that we are, um, we're modern people. We are, we live in the modern world. We're affected by modern mindset. Speaking about this mindset, I'll read this quote by uh, John Piper, who then quotes C.S. Lewis. It's actually the C.S. Lewis quote that I think is especially helpful. But, but to, to this issue of asking questions of God that he doesn't provide answers to, and then acting like, well, I'm not going to buy into it unless you explain yourself to me. Piper says this, arrogance toward God is all there is in the modern world. It's the ocean we swim in, the air we breathe. It's woven into the fabric of our minds. We don't even know it's there. We can't see it because we look through it to see everything else. We, we, we don't even see it because we look through it to see everything else. And then he quotes C.S. Lewis as saying this, the ancient man approached God as the accused person approaches his judge. Okay, the ancient man approached God as the accused person approaches his judge. For the modern man, Lewis says, the roles are reversed. He is the judge, God is in the dock the dock being the place where the defendant stood, the bench being the place where the judge sat. It says, man is the judge, God is in the dock. He is quite a kindly judge. If God should have a reasonable defense for being the God who permits war, poverty, and disease, he's ready to listen to it. The trial may even end in God's acquittal, but the important thing is that man is on the bench and God is in the dock. And Piper says that's virtually what it means to be modern, the imperceptible feeling, the assumption we don't even know we have, that it is fitting for us to question and even judge God. And, and so let me, let me um, sort of pull some tension at this thing. I think asking questions is, for a believer is a good thing. To wrestle with... Um, you know, statements of truth in the Bible, doctrinal things and that sort of thing that seem to be at odds with each other, that pull that tension with you up to wrestle with that, to ask questions of that is a good and healthy thing. Um, but to insist at the end of the day uh, that, hey, I'm not, uh, I've got a, God, I've got a counter offer and you're gonna have to meet it before I, before I budge. God is not answerable to man. He is Lord over every square inch of creation. And so when it comes to why does, why does he use people in the work of evangelism? Why does he use, did he use Ananias? He doesn't really answer it. I do think that Tim, Tim Keller had some helpful thoughts on this, and I'll, I'll read this quote and then conclude with a few points of application. But Keller says, we evangelize because of the privilege of sharing in God's work with him. 
For example, a father might be able to chop wood for the stove himself, but he asks his children to learn to chop the wood and stoke the fire as well. What if the children say, we have no incentive to chop the wood? We know that if we don't cut it, our father will do it anyway. I feel like my children have probably pulled that on, on me before, but, but he won't let us freeze. But the father would respond, of course I could do it myself, but I want you to share in the work with me. The authority and privilege of working with our heavenly father is surely plenty of incentive. He wants to work with us and for us. Now that's Keller's uh, explanation as to uh, in, in what sense is it reasonable uh, for people to engage in the work of evangelism in partnership with a God who's sovereign over everything anyway. We partner with him, we work with him. And that's not a thus saith the Lord, but it helps um, give perspective on that. But man is, unbelieving man is hostile toward God and God saves people in spite of that hostility and he uses other people as instruments to carry out that work. Now, so what in all of that? I mean, so how, does, what, how is that relevant in any way uh, to us? Well, actually, I would say in, in more ways than I'm gonna name right here, uh, that a, a right understanding of who God is and who we are changes everything. It changes more things than you can number and it will change them for the rest of your life. But I only have about 90 seconds left. And so uh, I'll mention just a few. But number one, that no matter how far astray somebody has gone, God can save them. You know, you don't ever have to give up praying for some loved one who is hard-hearted and angry toward God. Look, I, I don't know about you, but I know of friends and loved ones that I pray for. I don't want God to be a perfect gentleman toward them, right? I don't, I don't want him to woo them. I want him to jerk a knot in them. <laughs> Lord, just, just shake them up, you know? Do what you got to do, Lord. You got my blessing. <laughs> As if he needed it. But you get what I'm saying. In other words, you know, God doesn't have to pull up short because he's limited himself in some way. There is no, there, there's no such thing as a no-fly zone for God. There aren't, somebody else doesn't have sovereign territory that he cannot enter. It is all his, every square inch. And so are every one of us, spirit, soul, and body belong to him. He is Lord. And you can, you can pray, God, demonstrate your lordship in a radical way. I, I, again, I know some people, I'd love for him to be on the road to somewhere probably not behind the wheel, but uh, <laughs> meet Jesus in that kind of way and never be the same. You, no matter how far they've gone, you can pray for God to invade their life and save him. It's not outside of his authority. Number two, in the work of evangelism, the salvation of people doesn't depend upon our cleverness or our convincing arguments. 
Now, again, here's one of the things I find a bit of tension in because God uses means to accomplish his will in all kinds of ways. And that involves conversation with people, you know, gospel presentation, love and listening, as I mentioned week before last, just being a good listener to people saying, what do I not know? Help me understand what I don't understand and those kinds of things. That, that unfolds in ways, just a whole myriad of ways. In fact, it probably has in our lives, if we were to sit and tell our own personal testimonies, how God led us to the Lord, it'd be a bunch of different stories. Um, but ultimately, it doesn't depend on us to say just the right thing in just the right way. We don't have to have all the answers to all the questions Right? We don't have to know what the objection is from every other religious persuasion or, or worldview before we feel like we're equipped to talk to anybody about Jesus. You see, Jesus had already done the work on Saul before he sent Ananias in, but he still sent him in. And he laid his hands on him and then he regained his sight. Then he was filled with the Holy Spirit. Then he was baptized and became the servant that he became. It doesn't depend on us, even though we're called to go and work as if it does in a respect. You, you see what I mean? We're, we're called to go and preach the gospel. We're called to go do so winsomely, to give an answer for the reason for the hope in us and so forth but God is the one Lord over the conscious. Number three, the better we understand God's sovereign grace toward us, the more grateful we will be to him and the more gracious we will be toward others. You know, it was Paul who wrote the phrase we're familiar with. It's by grace that you're saved through faith and that not of yourselves is the gift of God, not of works lest any man should boast. Can you appreciate from this account why Paul didn't have any reason to boast in his own salvation? He realized he contributed nothing to it. And the more we understand that, the more gracious we will be toward people who are just raging sinners <laughs> or people at any point along their journey um, in their walk with Christ. Because his grace is amazing. And to one degree or another, it's radical. And it changes us and changes things for us forever. The more we understand, the more evident that will be in the lives of other people. Well, let's pray together. Father, we do... Uh, we thank you for your grace toward us. We have our own testimony. Lord, there uh, are surely some here today who don't have that testimony, who themselves um, haven't believed in Jesus, who haven't turned and followed him. Lord, I pray by your great and sovereign grace that you would call them to yourself. Demonstrate how wonderful and marvelous you are. But Lord, for those who have believed and do believe, we know how amazing your grace is. We remember 
to one degree or another. When we were outside of Christ, we, we know we were hostile toward the things of God, inclined to go our own way. And yet, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, you made us alive together with Christ and seated us together with him in the heavenly places. Thank you, Lord. And would you just deepen our understanding of that so that we pray, we pray for people who don't believe, those we know and love, and even those we don't know, that we pray for them with the conviction that nobody is outside of your reach. And Lord, that we would be faithful and obedient workers like Ananias with the confidence that you have gone before us and that you go with us. And it is in your hand to save. Lord, there is so much here to digest. I know I just pray that by your spirit, you would minister this truth to each of us according to our need, that you would work it in us so that we might work it more effectively out of us. In the great name of Jesus, amen. And um, I'm gonna ask you to stand uh, as we, as you receive the benediction, I'll invite um, during our closing song, some of our elders to make their way forward to be available for prayer. And if you need prayer for um, anything, just somebody to stand with you, we would love the privilege of doing that. Maybe you have a loved one um, you would like somebody to pray for with you, that they, um, they need the Lord and you want desperately for them to know him. We'd love to pray with you about that or in any other matter. And so I'm going to um, make my way to the back as I offer the benediction. And then um, we will uh, have a closing song um, together. And so would you just hold your hands and receive the benediction. And now the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace, both now and forevermore. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.